Hello, I'm John Meacham, co-chair of the Vanderbilt Project on Unity and American Democracy, and I'd like to welcome you to Unity Talks. This is a series of conversations hosted by the project's co-chairs with experts from the media, the academy, and government on the challenges facing American democracy. Here at the Vanderbilt Project on Unity and American Democracy, we're seeking to restore and reinvigorate the national discourse, supplanting reflexive partisanship with reflective citizenship, anchored on facts and evidence. As you'll see in these episodes, a unity of opinion in an open democratic society is impossible. A unity of purpose, however, is achievable and necessary. Hopefully, these conversations, hosted by me and by former Tennessee Governor Bill Haslam and Vanderbilt's Summer Ali, will reinvigorate our shared commitment to American democracy and remind us of our obligations as active participants in this unfolding American experiment. Thank you all for joining us today. I am so excited as a co-chair of the Project on Unity in American Democracy to be in conversation with one of our senior advisory board members, Alita Black. Professor Alita Black is a world-renowned historian who is joining us today to talk about her lifelong work on Eleanor Roosevelt and Eleanor Roosevelt's impact on global democracy, foreign policy, peace studies, and human rights. Professor Black, thank you for joining us today. Oh, Summer, I'm so happy to be here. I look forward to this conversation very much. Me too. So I just wanted to start us off with this first question about what sparked your initial interest in researching Eleanor Roosevelt? And how has your lifelong body of work here influenced you? Well, at the risk of embarrassing myself by undercutting my um, academic credentials, uh, I went to a graduate school very late after running a series of nonprofits. And okay. I wanted to learn how to keep people at the table uh, from times of intense division and negotiation. And so as I began to look at that, um, I began to see that my preconceptions of Eleanor were just stupid. I mean, they were like comic book um, perceptions. In what and sense? So, well, um, you know, that they were very one-dimensional, that she was eyes and ears, that she did policy, you know, that she really was so polite that she was almost deferential. And nothing could be further from the truth. And so the issues that concerned me the most as my friends were dying from AIDS, as housing was becoming exceedingly expensive and out of reach for many people in Atlanta, um, the divisions within the Democratic Party over what I considered to be fundamental justice issues and how we had spiraled down into uh, name-calling by both parties. Um, Eleanor gave me a model to um, explore as I tried to mediate um, disputes between police and community members, between uh, the city council and housing. Was and this in the 1980s? Yeah, 1980s. And then, oh, sorry, in the 1980s. And then um, when, uh, and 
in the late 80s, when I was finishing my degree, much to, well, my coursework, much to the dismay of my academic advisor, I went to him and said, Leo, nobody has done Eleanor's influence on the Democratic Party. This is a critical omission in Roosevelt scholarship. And he just looked at me with this sort of condescending smile on his face and said, do you really have to do that? And I went back to him and I said, Rebuffo, just because you don't want to you don't want to read it, that doesn't mean it's not important. At which point I got one of the great classic Rebuffo belly laughs and um, and I took off. And it's been a lifelong journey ever since that literally has taken me around the world and allowed me to meet with uh, and work with Nobel Prize winners and leading women uh, political figures around the world. That's amazing. That's amazing. Thank you. And one of your books on Eleanor Roosevelt is titled Courage in a Dangerous World. And one of your most recent books is titled The Moral Basis of Democracy. These titles feel more relevant than ever in today's world as well. After studying Eleanor Roosevelt's papers, what strikes you most about her leadership skills and what lessons can she impart to modern day American policymakers, especially women interested in leading on foreign affairs and national security issues? Boy, that's a great question. I must say that's the best question I've ever been asked. Oh, wow, thank you. I mean, out of the ballpark. Um, The thing that stuns me daily is how intractable Eleanor's faith in democracy writ large was, despite, you know, daily palpable, painful evidence of its shortcomings. And so how she balances that conviction without sugarcoating disappointments is a stunning lesson that I think that we all could emulate and that I must say has given me um, great comfort and great scolding, you know, at the the same time, you know, when I uh, uh, neglect to follow that. So I think that's the first thing. I think the other thing that is critical to today is that Eleanor was Fiercely partisan, fiercely partisan. I mean, Arthur Schlesinger told me she was the she was the greatest political war horse he'd ever come up against. And wow. she she took no prisoners. But really? at the same time, that did not mean that she trashed her opponent. Okay. And so if we could fast forward a little bit to her time at the UN in the, you know, in the late forties and the early fifties, this is the trait that served her the most. Because in order to define human rights for the first time in history, I mean, in the first time in thousands of years, she had to pull Republicans in, in conversation. And she had to pull in Jim Crow Democrats in the conversation, and she had to pull in representatives of 18 nations 
who didn't agree on anything except they beat the Germans. And so her ability to be firm in her beliefs without disparaging or attacking her opponents, that doesn't mean she didn't criticize them. She criticized them, but she criticized them with the tone that they heard. And the perfect example of this is her relationship with John Foster Dulles, you know, who was an ardent, very conservative Republican, who would be the foreign policy advisor to Tom Dewey, who challenged FDR and would challenge Truman. But she appealed to Dulles as a Catholic to get his buy-in to the importance of economic, social, and cultural rights as the twin pillar to political and civil rights. And so she takes the most fierce Republican with her to Truman to present the declaration. That's like taking Joe Manchin, I'm sorry, not Joe Manchin, uh, Mitch McConnell. It's like taking Mitch McConnell to be your ally when you're pitching Biden. And she was able to do that. And this is the third point that I would like to make is that she was familiar with all of the religions of the world. And she Mm, read widely in them. So she was able to figure out how to find common ground and appeal to a wide array of spiritual and political references during her debates. So she was able to relate and connect Absolutely. At every point and level. Well, you mentioned about Jim Crow Democrats and pulling people together. Um, And I wanted to just turn for a moment here to talk about the historic Highlander Folk School. And the question there is, can you tell us more about Eleanor Roosevelt's involvement with the Highlander Folk School, which is in Grundy County, Tennessee, right down the road from where we currently sit right now at Vanderbilt? Well, it's one of my favorite places in the world, so I am enormously happy to talk about it. Um, When the Highlander School really came into existence um, and became an institution of uh, notoriety or repute, depending upon which side of the political spectrum you sat, it was a labor school. You know, it was designed to teach men and women how to organize for collective bargaining. But by the late 40s, it had transferred um, its focus from labor to racial justice. And Eleanor had been a lifelong supporter of Highland. She had been a donor to it, you know, that draw that uh, elicited great national criticism, but that she remained steadfast with it. And she led workshops there on nonviolent civil disobedience, on um, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Uh, She was such an avid supporter of Highlander that she had to drive through the Klan up macadamized, unlit, dark roads going up the mountain to Mine Eagle because the Klan was coming together. We now know from um, her FBI file that J. Edgar Hoover was in collusion with um, the deputies in the county 
and was in collusion with the Klan. And, and when he found out that the Klan had placed a $25,000 bounty on Eleanor Roosevelt's head and was going to um, abduct her as she drove to Highlander, he, and there's a paper trail on this that's a fog cabinet long, um, he pulled the cops out of that county so it told Eleanor that he couldn't protect her, thinking that she would decline the invitation. But he didn't know her. And she went anyway. She was greeted at the Nashville airport. There was no Secret Service. So there was an unloaded gun in the car. And Eleanor drove through the Klan to lead a workshop on how the Universal Declaration of Human Rights affected um, the NAACP on whose board she sat, strategy to combat Jim Crow. Wow. And wait, one more question, one more thing. So when um, Rosa Parks and Miles Horton, who directed Highlander, called on Eleanor in New York right after um, Rosa Parks had refused to stand on the bus. The first question Eleanor asked her when she walked into Eleanor's apartment and Eleanor hung her coat up was, well, have they called you a communist yet, Mrs. Parks? Meaning that, you know, her association with Highlander um, would lead to political hyperbole. Wow, wow. Got to take lots to take in there. Um, so why was Eleanor Roosevelt so attracted to defending human rights and democracy as a vehicle for defending human rights? Why did she view democracy as a vehicle for defending human rights in essence? And do you think her definition of human rights resembles how we think of human rights today? Oh, okay, great questions. Um, her understanding of democracy grew and her okay. understanding of the threats to democracy grew. Um, I, I think I should start in 33 in March when FDR is giving his famous inaugural address. You know, she looks out at the crowd and she later writes that there was such a sense of desperation on that crowd that she feared that they were really just wanting a dictator to tell them what to do. And so her uh, first experience on a national level is trying to figure out how to combat the fear that permeated America so that people would relax enough to become engaged citizens. And as she worked to do that through, you know, either her newspaper columns or uh, her national lecture tour, or her uh, uh, personal travels without secret service, so that you know she was always approachable. Um, she began to understand that democracy, to use her words, was only as strong as its weakest link. Mm -hmm. And the weakest link in democracy was fear. And so as she began to travel across the country in the Great Depression and 
you know, talk with people of all incomes and all races and ethnicities. She began to learn from them how they saw democracy in a different way. And she begins to really uh, say, you know, that this is no time for hyphenates. We are all Americans. And as the war progresses, she's very concerned that um, uh, this is before Pearl Harbor. The vast majority of Americans are opposing American involvement. They think the Germans are going to win the war. FDR is under great criticism for what will become known as basis for destroyers or lend-lease. And so she is trying to show Americans that we have challenges that we need to face at home and shore up in order to build the one America that is needed to combat fascism, which is why the Marian Anderson concert is so important. And for your listeners who may not know about Marian Anderson, Marian Anderson was a rock star opera singer. She sang black spirituals. She sang classical opera. Toscanini, the most famous conductor of the era, said that she had the voice one hears once in a century. And she had been knighted by the king and queen of England. She'd been awarded Stalin's highest medal. She'd even humiliated Hitler in the Salzburg Music Festival. Think Edelweiss and the Sound of Music. Right. Okay. You know? And so the reason that that's so important is that Eleanor uses the Marian Anderson concert to say, why curse Hitler and support Jim Crow? And she begins linking American racism to the racial superiority that um, the Germans are promoting. And so she sees it grow, you know, a lot. And she is haunted by the white on black racial violence that predominates riots in World War II America. She is really haunted, I mean, like as in nightmare level, by the sacrifices that soldiers make. So that when she is finally able to visit soldiers in the Pacific in 43, in war zones, she begins to carry a prayer in her wallet that really reflects her commitment, I think, and that is, Dear Lord, lest I continue in my complacent ways, help me to remember that somewhere someone died for me today. And if there be war, help me to remember to ask and to answer, am I worth dying for? And so to how that affects her work on human rights is that she sees the best and the worst. And by the time she chairs the Human Rights Commission, simply put, the world has two, uh, two visions. One's clearly defined, the Holocaust, the bomb, 
500,000 American dead, even more wounded, 40 to 60 million displaced refugees, you know, an economy that is totally dependent upon defense spending, and a a desire to combat that. And so her faith in democracy with the Declaration was her vision to redefine democracy to address the most pressing issues she saw confronting the world. And, and how did she deal with that at the time when she was serving as the first chair of the UN, the first chair as the human as the UN Human Rights Commission? How did she engage in an almost two front struggle um, from her own State Department while also wrangling the consensus needed from a fa- fractured UN body riven by an emerging Cold War at the time? Um, how did she manage to create that consensus? Through the force of her personality and sheer will and not caring what the State Department said. No, she uh, was not trying to advance her own political career. She had already turned down all these pleas to uh, run for office or head universities or you know, run uh, liberal think tanks. What she wanted to do was to get the declaration through. And that meant that she had to have, as one of my students told me, a Velcro butt that just stayed in the chair. Um, she had, she met 300 times over 3,000 hours. And remember, she was conversant with different faiths and had traveled all right. over the world. So she right. could build that, you know, personal sense of diplomacy and intractable determination. Right. Right. Um, Well, on that, during the drafting of the UN Declaration of Human Rights, she often schooled the lawyers on the importance of plain speaking. Why did she believe it was so important to avoid legal jargon when discussing matters of public policy? The policy will succeed to the extent that people understand it. And for people to understand it, it must be clear and comprehensible without being dumbed down. So that's that's one reason. The other reason, too, is that it had to get passed. And the more you qualify it, the more you open the Pandora's box to every amendment known to humankind. So it was a matter of inclusion and a matter of effectiveness. Mm -hmm. So she was really pragmatic and very practical and constantly focused on the on on the end goal and the bottom line it sounds like absolutely and so on that um why was eleanor roosevelt so attracted well i would say sorry how did her time as first lady give shape to the expected role to be played by a presidential spouse so you mentioned about the 1933 inaugural address and where she's looking out and i'm presuming that she's there as first lady and that was her position at the time of being there that day and so um how was she able as the first lady to define that role and what it meant how did that shape 
other first ladies to come? And how was she able to develop a policy portfolio and exert political influence during her time as first lady? How did she shape that office? Well, first she had to claim it. And she didn't want to move to the White House. I mean, she confessed to her, well, admitted to her great friend, Lorena Hickok, election night, that she did not want to move to the White House, that she had seen how it ate women, and that moving into the White House filled her with the greatest sense of possible dread. And FDR had said to her, okay, you have to stop everything that you're doing. You can't teach. You have to resign all the boards that you're on. You can no longer write. You have to come in and be my wife, basically. And um, and so Eleanor is exceedingly unhappy. This woman is a political operative. She was more well-known among the party faithful in New York at 28 than FDR was when he ran for governor. And that's what Al Smith, the governor that he was trying to succeed, told his chief of staff. That's not me making it up. That's Al Smith. Because he wanted FDR so that he could get all of Eleanor's contacts. And he also thought erroneously that he could control FDR. But so she had to figure out how to lead when she was told not to lead. Mm. And in comes Louis Howe, who was FDR's political uh, brain trust and a very good friend of Ellen's. And he's tired of seeing her pout. And so he's like, come on, you got to get out of here. We're going to go for a ride. Okay, this is the uh, late summer 33. There's no CNN. There are no selfies. You know, there are no um, uh, cameras that uh, folks can uh, carry around on their shoulder. So they go and they're driving around the city talking. And they end up with the bonus army on the Anacostia side of the river. And these are veterans from World War I who have lost everything, who are living in tents made of newspaper and canvas to try to lobby Congress to get their pension. And Hoover had sent the troops on them and had fired on them. And if you know he had a chance of winning the election in 28, that killed him. And Eleanor ends up there. She spends hours there talking to people. Why is this important? The next day, the press, who was not there but finds out about it, writes this sentence that changes American history. Hoover sent the troops, FDR sent his wife. And FDR now understands that Eleanor can be good copy. And so she begins to be let loose and comes back and, um, you know, becomes not eyes and ears, but more of a, a political antenna, if you will, and building her own relationships with elected officials. And what year is this? This is 33, 34. Okay. You know, she's, she's out there. And so by 1935, when Huey Long you know, is going to challenge FDR from the left. It's Eleanor 
who was assigned the immediate task of um, drawing attention away from Huey Long's uh, newspaper columns. So Eleanor develops her own portfolio by convincing FDR that she is of value. She also holds press conferences with women women reporters so they can reinforce her activity. And then the third thing that she does is she never takes credit for any policy decision. She totally um, conceals her influence, not because she's embarrassed, but because FDR um, is paralyzed and is uses a wheelchair. And so she is afraid that if her influence is known, it will undercut the virile stature of her husband, the president. Wow. Um, so in addition to working for many years on the Eleanor Roosevelt papers, you also serve as a historian and senior advisor to Hillary Clinton. Yes. How did Eleanor Roosevelt's legacy that we've been talking about impact Hillary Clinton's vision of her responsibilities as first lady and later as secretary of state after serving as a senator from New York? I don't think there's anybody in the world who could understand the focus and the patriotism and the stamina and the stubbornness of Eleanor more than um, Secretary Clinton. And I say that because they both had, they both went in the White House with their own deep commitment to specific uh, legislative issues. You know, for Eleanor Roosevelt, it was the minimum, the Fair Labor Standards Act. It was the education of children. It was the National Youth Administration. And it was the right to organize and the right for women to continue to hold their work. You know, and so she went in focused on how she could promote that. Um, Secretary Clinton went in with children and the rights of women and healthcare and education um, as her focus. And because they were both lightning rods, you know, they're like, um, they're Rorschach tests. I mean, Eleanor was Rorschach for what uh, women could be allowed to do in the 30s. And Secretary Clinton, was the workshop test for what women should be able to use their skills to do. And so they're, they're caught in that both. They're, they're caught in that, you know, bond of identification. But I also think that as Secretary Clinton enters the, well, First Lady Clinton enters the second term of um, the White House. Like Eleanor, she realizes the power of her voice over him. And as Eleanor becomes the voice for democracy overseas, for surviving bombing raids, for combating 
fascism for trying to get people to look at America in all of its diversity and candor. Hillary goes to Beijing. And just like Hillary goes to Beijing, you know, and Eleanor chairs the declaration drafting committee, they both more than any known women of their age carry that responsibility to make that promise real. So an enormous, enormous ownership of responsibility. It's an indescribable responsibility, an onus, if you will, that um, that requires great discipline and great soul armor, if you will, to you know repel the slings and arrows of outrageous accusations. Mm-hmm. Well, on that note, as you've alluded to a few times here, both Eleanor Roosevelt and Hillary Clinton, Secretary Clinton, were not universally admired by the American electorate. That's an understatement, um, I think. So to what do you attribute much of the harsh condemnation of both Secretary Clinton and Eleanor Roosevelt by their political foes and perhaps by everyday Americans? Well, there, there are two different issues, I think, that um, are the lightning rods for them. Right. With Eleanor, the issue is race. There is no question about it. Even though when we look at her statements now, we may cringe at the temerity of some of them. Um, you know, there were numerous assassination attempts on her life because of her statements on race, um, her closeness with um, A. Philip Randolph, her um, intense friendship with Mary McLeod Bethune, um, you know, her, her role with Marian Anderson, her role with the NAACP, and her, um, the country knew that if FDR was going to adhere to the political necessities of the time to get New Deal legislation passed, which meant catering to Southern segregationist Democratic senators with seniority, Eleanor wasn't going to play that game. And, you know, J. Edgar Hoover again thought, thought she had black blood, was trying to pass, wanted to convene a meeting of the Senate Judiciary Committee to declare her colored and send Eleanor to live with her people, the colored in Liberia. And um, so there were, you know, there, and if you were um, identified with a liberal position on race as the Cold War escalated, you know, it didn't take two nanoseconds for you to be labeled a communist. But at the time that she was attacked, she was also the most admired woman in America. Okay, this parallel holds with Hillary in the White House and in the Senate and in her early days of Secretary of State. But with Hillary, it was the lightning rod over what is women's role in America. You know, we're, we're now um, uh, 
we're still fighting it out. You know, are we uh, are we uh, allow are women allowed to say what they think? Are they allowed to dress a certain way? Uh, what happens if you wear a headband and you don't go to the beauty parlor that morning and you're you know you're um, you're first lady of the United States? I mean, just as the president is supposed to be head of state and head of government, you know, the first lady during um, Hillary's time, Secretary Clinton's time, was, you know, first mate or first wife. And so you get into the who elected her anyway, which I think is an incredibly ironic historical um, uh, attack because all the women before Hillary concealed their influence. Eleanor went to her grave saying she never changed FDR's mind on anything. You know, Rosalind Carter kept most of her influence quiet, even in First Lady from Plains. We're only knowing about Lady Bird now from the Johnson tapes. So, you know, um, the First Lady Hillary Clinton was uh, caught in the feminist trap of wife or leader when we couldn't reconcile both and um, being candid about her influence. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Right. So but it's the narrative. Too, you know, the most Sorry. both were the most admired women in the United States and in the world. And then Hillary Clinton runs for office after being first lady. She runs, which Eleanor Roosevelt didn't do, as you said, and you, as you've made clear here, Eleanor Roosevelt was invited to, she was encouraged to, but she decided not to. Hillary Clinton decided to. I'm wondering if you can give us an insight into why you think she made that decision. And also how that then being in politics as a senator, a U.S. senator herself mm -hmm. um, influenced her as secretary of state. Well, I think the, the simplest way to say this was Hillary had the credentials. She right. was a lawyer. She had chaired committees for the American Bar Association. Right. You know, she had helped draft policy, both as um, the First Lady of Arkansas and First Lady of the United States. She had traveled um, uh, incessantly, really. Um, in the second term, had her own relationships with heads of state, had her own relationships um, with members of Congress in the Senate whom she had lobbied. And so it was a bold decision, but it was a natural progression. Plus, she was recruited to do it. Right. So um, when she got to be senator, you know, to quote um, Senator Robert Byrd, she kept her head down and she did the work. You know, she wasn't um, hogging the, the limelight. And right. how this prepared her to be the Secretary of State is, well, she's the senator from, from New York on 9-11. That's one. Um, she had, um, she would go on to serve on the Armed Services Committee and foreign relations and, and other things. So she had um, 
you know, it would go to Hodel's um, in war zone. So she had um, she had that experience. So um, and then she also understood the intimate connection between American domestic policy and American foreign policy. Right. Which is, you know, a key requirement to be Secretary of State. And if I could just say one thing about Eleanor, I mean, Eleanor had four years of education. I'm not talking college or postgraduate school or professional training. I'm talking four years at the Allenswood School in London. And so um, after Eleanor marries FDR, there's always a struggle on how she finds her own voice. What do you mean by four years? I just want to make sure I'm clear. Nine, 10th, 11th, and 12th grade. That's it. That's it. Wow. Okay. Totally self-taught. A voracious reader. A very active listener. You know, who would seek out information. And so um, as she marries FDR, the big struggle with Eleanor and with FDR is how they both find their voices, you know, in the 30 years of their marriage. And so while she's in the White House for 13, almost, you know, 14 years, um, and, the you know, four years of governor before that, it's she has to watch what she says. I mean, there's sometimes when she's just going to be out there and I don't care what he says. You know, like when she speaks out against internment and she speaks out against right. anti-lynching. So when she leaves the White House after FDR dies and um, Harold Ickes, the longest serving member of FDR's cabinet, comes to her to beg her to run for office, she says, no, but you need not worry. My voice will not be silent. Eleanor does not want to be beholden to anybody. She has shut her mouth, you know, from 1884 to 1945. And now she wants to say what she thinks and influence the Democratic Party rather than have to uh, represent the Democratic Party. Mm-hmm. Does difference. that make sense? It makes complete sense. Yes, absolutely. And how do you think um, Malin Albright and Hillary Clinton and Eleanor Roosevelt have shaped American foreign policy as women? Well, I mean, we got to put Jean Kirkpatrick in there too at the, at yes. the United Nations. But um, I think in indelible ways, I mean, Kirkpatrick first showed us that a Republican woman who was conservative and who could be a uh, secretary of state could hold her own um, in military situations with the guns. Mm-hmm. I mean, witness right. Grenada and other things. But when, when you look at, at Madeleine Albright and Hillary Clinton, um, and then I want to bring Condoleezza Rice in as the yes, third. Of course. Um, Albright influenced American policy because she was a re- foreign policy, because she was a refugee, right? A woman who um, 
found out that late in life that she was Jewish, that, you know, people in her family had come out of the Holocaust. But what she understood more than anything is that women's voices mattered. Right. And that you could not build a successful, uh, uh, rebuild a failed state, solve a war, or negotiate um, um, intense international conflicts if women's voices and women's concerns were not brought into picture. And so, you know, it's Albright who really builds upon um, the early UN Security Council resolutions that Hillary gets passed while she's Secretary of State. You know, UN Mm -hmm. Security Council Resolution 1325. So Albright really believes that women's voices matter, that Beijing was just as important to Albright as it was to Hillary Clinton in terms of its world importance. And Albright understood that every man in America who was paying attention to American foreign policy was waiting for her to stumble. And so she was able to use humor and jewelry and bluntness to um, say, I'm here and I'm not going away. With um, with Secretary Clinton, she uh, was Senator Clinton moving into Secretary of State. She totally redesigns how the State Department works. Right. And she made um, the integration of women, peace, and security a fundamental tenet of American foreign policy and got um, the U.S. National Action Plan on Women, Peace, and Security through all of the 15 agencies that were involved with that, secured the support of the National Security um, Council, and secured the support of of, uh, President Obama. So it is now uh, a legal requirement of American foreign policy. That's one reason. The second thing... um, that um, that Secretary Clinton did was she reorganized American diplomacy around the three pillars of smart power, which is defense, diplomacy, and development, and elevated them all equally. And that had a huge impact on uh, American foreign policy, international commerce, uh, the treatment that women received uh, during war and coming out of war, and the alliances, uh, how America uh, approached the alliances it had um, um, in countries that were not there. Right. Well, speaking of countries and democracies that are there or not there yet, but are wanting to get there, What gives you a glimmer of hope for our own American democracy? I I won't lie. It's a a perilous time. Um, I think democracy uh, is in demise. Um, 
I was lucky enough to have dinner with uh, the brilliant Ann Applebaum last week. And, um, you know, talking about the, the steps that we have to take. And what gives me hope are people I know who literally risk themselves every day to try to make it work. And, you know, they could be um, of, you know, of, of not my party. Uh, I'm on the board, if I can say this, of the campaign school at Yale, which is a bipartisan, issue neutral, uh, best campaign training school in the United States on how to train women to run for office. And it's a, a multi-partisan board. And I have to work with my friend Betsy Agney, who runs the Republican, who ran the Republican senatorial campaign and now works for Nikki Haven. Now, mm -hmm. Betsy and I agree on maybe 30%, but we have learned to focus on our bedrock commitment to electing women. And the fact that Betsy and I can stay friends for six years through all this madness, and we're both opinionated as hell, shows you know that it's possible and then, you know, I look at what Secretary Clinton does every day and how she risks herself behind the scenes to make it work and to be exposed to the joy and the courage that is Ellen Johnson's relief, the first woman to lead a democratic elected nation in Africa, to watch Ellen, my friend Ellen, bring uh, Liberia back from war and win the Nobel Peace Prize, you know, it's hard to be lazy when you have these, you know, the, these women in your brain um, sort of yanking your conscience. And I'm also um, incredibly stubborn. This is my country too. And finally, if you had to pinpoint one thing that sparks unity within America right now, whether it be a sentiment, activity, policy, person, what would it be? I don't know. I mean, I've been haunted by that since you um, raised that with me last week. Um, I'm going to sort of go out on a limb and say that, and this is my, I guess, Eleanor optimism, but even among all the anger and this division, we're still here, you know? And I don't think um, people want to, despite all of the rhetoric and intemperance and asinine, juvenile, violent behavior, um, that people want to let go of what America means to them. And if America didn't mean that, people wouldn't be so outrageous. Hmm. Does that make sense? A hundred percent. Well, thank you. I hope you already know this, but you're incredible. Oh, please. Your wisdom and your knowledge. It was really nice to meet you. 
Nice to meet you too. This is an unforgettable conversation. Thank you. My pleasure. Take good care.